Hi, this is Adrian Paul, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hello, this is BT Edney. I played Heather in the original Highlander film, and you are watching Highlander Rewatched. This is Andy Armstrong. I was the second unit director, directing the action units in New York on the original Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is Anthony Borges, also known as the Gabriel Consoli from the Duende episode of Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Grayson. I played Amanda on Highland of the Series and the spin-off called Highland of the Raven, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatch. Everybody involved with Highlander has stories, and they're great, great stories. This is John Mosby, the author of Fearful Symmetry, the essential guide to all things Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Ken Gord, producer of the Highlander series, and you are listening to the podcast Highlander Rewatched. Hey, this is Stan Kirsch. I played Richie Ryan on Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. Welcome to Highlander Rewatch, the podcast where each and every week we talk about another facet of the Highlander universe. I'm one of your hosts, I'm Keith. And this is Eamon. And this week is a very special episode. Usually we're talking about the Highlander television series or films, uh, and this is one of our very special Chronicle episodes where we interview people that are intimately involved with the Highlander franchise. This week we are joined by actor and director Stan Kirsch. Welcome to the show, Stan. Oh, thank you, Keith. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join us. Um, we figured we'd jump right in. Well, actually, let's let's not even jump right in. How are things going with you? It's been uh, a little while, I guess, since uh, a lot of our fans have maybe heard from you. So what's what's new in the world of Stan Kirsch? Uh, things are good. Um, I, I, I guess, as you guys know, um, my wife and I own and operate Stan Kirsch Studios in L.A., and we're extremely busy uh, on a day-to-day basis. Coaching, training actors, and uh, it's really become <laughs> an immensely full-time job. We we follow you on Instagram, uh, and I think it's really cool that with your students, you like promote when they're getting new roles on like TV shows and, and things like that. I, I think that's really awesome. D- is that oh, is that thanks. fulfilling to you? I, I, I imagine it is. Oh, it's very very much. I mean, I've seen people with no credits or virtually none who, in a matter of just a couple of years are on a CBS television series, and it's not something that happens all the time. But watching somebody book something, or you know, have their career propel on, you know, into another level, it's always very gratifying. And it was actually my wife's idea to promote that stuff. And frankly, it's also good for business because actors are seeing, oh, people are actually working. There, there are results. Can you tell us about how you got into acting in general first? I was an actor when I was a little kid, uh, about four years old, in New York City, where I grew up, and it happened very much by accident. I did, I did a couple of modeling jobs. I did one or two commercials for Campbell's Soup, and so that's where it started. And then um, I was too young to really know what was happening, and my parents said, this is not going to be your life, and we want you to 
go get an education. And then in high school, I got a little bit more into it. I took classes. I was in plays. Went to college thinking I was going to go into business or law, something practical. And then same thing happened again. I fell into it and went through a pretty rigorous, it was almost like a conservatory within the university. And uh, came out of it and my family was supportive. And I said, you know, I think I'm I'm, going to give this a shot. After college, I moved back to New York City, and I did a couple of off-off-Broadway plays. I got my SAG card through an MCI commercial, and I met with an agent, and um, around the same time, I auditioned for this ABC TV pilot, and I ended up getting it. And I went out to L.A. to shoot it, and I never went back. (laughs) (laughs) The pilot did not get picked up, but I stayed in Los Angeles, and I was off and running. (laughs) So after that, how did you get into Highlander? Did you know anything about Highlander before you auditioned for the part? You know, I didn't. (laughs) I didn't know anything about it. I had heard of it, and it was my college roommate's, I think it was his favorite movie, the original (laughs) one. But I had never heard, I had never seen it. And after I got the part, that's when I actually, uh, and going back that far, I had to go rent the VHS tape, and (laughs) (laughs) it was very different. And that's when I saw the movie, and I was vastly impressed. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be part of this world. And and knowing that Christopher uh, Lambert was going to be in the pilot, that was incredibly exciting. I mean, he was such a talented, unbelievable actor to watch right up close. And such a nice guy on top of it. He was just great. So the the role of Richie Ryan, I guess he kind of wears a few hats in the show. I mean, he's like comic relief. Yeah. He's kind of like he's got a lot of jobs sometimes week to week in the uh, the earlier season. So can you tell us about a, a little bit about I guess what it's like to play like a supporting role in a series as opposed to a lead? I'm sure that's got to be a different experience for an actor. Your job is to service the show and the show, you know, being called Highlander, you know, I mean, it revolved around Duncan McLeod and his character. And so week to week, knowing that your job is to either, you know, push his buttons or uh, do something wrong so that he can come in and save the day or have him teach a lesson. You're, you know, sort of, uh, I guess I would equate it to basketball. You're kind of throwing up the alley-oops so that he can dunk it, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, when, I, when I'm working with actors now, I tell them, you know, that's a similar analogy that I'll use. And then I'll even say guest starring is like basically going to someone's, someone else's house for dinner. You don't have to cook. You don't have to clean up. But you don't get to choose what you eat or where you sit. You know, <laughs> you just sort of... Yeah, and, and then being the lead is sort of like everything falls on you. You're very... You're responsible for everything. You're pretty much there all the time. And then a supporting character would fall somewhere in between there. You know, you're choosing maybe like an appetizer and you're organizing some of the seating, but you're not in charge. (laughs) That's a good analogy. Uh, How was the chemistry on set? The chemistry was great. I mean, fortunately, because we never shot a day of the series in L.A. I mean, I don't even think in the United States now that I think about it. And, I mean, it was very exciting to get, you know, flown off to Vancouver in 1992. And, you know, I'm going to shoot for nine months in a row. It was very exciting and surreal at the time. But fortunately, Adrian and I got along really well, and we made a really great effort, and I got to give him credit. 
try to, he was more familiar with this, really try to make all the guest stars who came on the show feel very welcome and warm. And not all sets, to be frank, are like that. So, but we also knew the show would be better their acting would be better, our scenes would be better, and we just have more fun. You know, the producers, uh, you know, we, we just sort of all had a, had a pretty tight-knit family. Don, Panessa, and I became very close, and to this day, we're still very close, and he produced the first short film that I ever directed and also ran a camera on it, and so, and, and him and his wife, Renee, they were like my aunt and uncle, almost. Oh, and, wow. uh, yeah, Renee would joke like, oh, I'm the second mom. That was great. And he taught me an immense amount about not just acting, but the whole process. There were days when I wasn't shooting and he would say, I want you to come to the editing day. And it wasn't really a, a normal thing that actors would go. And he would do it to show me how the show was cut and also to pull up clips of, you know, things that I've done that were good and, like, this is why this worked or this is why this didn't work. And, you know, clips of other actors and who were more seasoned and, you know, show me, you know, how subtlety came into play. And I learned a lot, not just about acting. Even though Don wasn't really on the set too much, I learned a tremendous amount from him and the entire filmmaking process. That's really interesting. Like, we recently talked to director on the series clay boris and he mentioned like knowing editing yeah. is really helpful in the process of like making a television show and like knowing oh my God, it's key to do the right thing so that that that's it's really key. fascinating it's key because you have such little time and you can't go back i mean technically you could reshoot a scene at a later point in time but it's it's not like doing a movie or ending one episode on a Wednesday and you're starting the next one on a Thursday and you've got to be so organized, know what you're doing, and you've got to, as a director, I realize now, be editing the show in your head as you go. You don't have time to really pick anything up. And time is crucial. You know, you got to know where you're going to spend a little bit more time on a scene, where you're going to be able to move through a scene a little bit quicker, where you're going to do more coverage, where you're going to do something in a one shot. And then hopefully the actors enable you to move along. I mean, I had a good chemistry with all of the directors, with some did more episodes than others. But I also learned that when you're in a TV show, even if you're a lead or supporting, you're supporting lead as I was, ultimately... Just move the show along and pick your battles. If you're, if every scene you're doing, you're asking for an uptake, you know, you're just holding things up and, you know, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit there. I don't want, I want to move, you know, pick your battles. I mean, if there's a particular scene where something is really important, great. But other than that, it's really best to just let the show move along. I mean, the producers and the director are doing their best to try to make 22 movies a year. It's an incredible job. The, the, the pressure is immense. I can imagine. Did you influence the character of Richie Ryan at all? Like, what was the character presented to you as? And then obviously went through a lot of incarnations. Uh, you became like a motorcycle racer at some point. Was was there any of your own personal interest uh, involved in that? Um, not mine. I had ridden a motorcycle for another TV series that I did prior to Highlander. It was a uh, Saturday morning TV show called Riders in the Sky that played at like 7 a.m. in the morning um, and had 
some live action puppets and it was pretty neat but it was for kids and I was oh, meant wow. to ride in the show and so they had me ride around the lot and the riding wasn't difficult uh, on that show it was all on one sound stage what was difficult was starting the bike and 60 feet later having to land on a mark while there's four cameras right in front of you right. and uh yeah, so I learned a little bit there, but it was not really something I did, and so there was <laughs> there was honestly quite a bit of doubling on the motorcycle riding, especially considering how great they wanted my character to be. I remember to this day watching the clip where that ended up in the opening credits, where I supposedly go through the glass, go through the window, right yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, and I think the guy that was doubling me at that point was a professional motorcycle rider, motocross racer, and I couldn't believe what he did, and I thought, oh my God, that's me, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that one really wasn't something that was an interest of mine. I did pitch to the producers, hey, if you really want me to do this, why don't, you know, you pay for some lessons and, you know, pay for me to properly do this in the hiatus, but that, that never came to fruition, so. Oh. No, no professional development. I think it was. Funds. I think it was easier on them to just well, we'll just double you when yeah. we need to. <laughs> I was. I was curious since you did have you know so many transformations as a character on the show. I wondered, did you ever wish like you got to have flashbacks and like use an accent or dress in like a goofy outfit like some of the other immortal characters? I shouldn't say goofy, but <laughs> yeah, different time period um, outfits. You know, at the time, I that never really. Uh, came to mind, but looking back, that would have been pretty cool. Um, at the time, I wasn't really, I guess, I guess I wasn't thinking about that. I mean, as soon as they were going through a flashback, I knew, you know, I had a few hours or I wasn't working that day. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, at the time, I was, you know, I was young. I was in my early 20s, and be it Vancouver or Paris, there were so many things to do. So, you know, especially at the beginning of the show, I, I, I had a good time with the off time. Later, as the series progressed, I wanted to be working more, acting more outside of the show. So our contracts were, were changed, and I, and no, no, as you guys know, no character at that point was all shows produced, which means you're in every episode except Adrian. Right. Right. Like sometimes you'd so have Joe or Charlie yeah. or Maurice or whoever. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I, but, I, but like I said, at the time, I never really thought about it. But looking back, it would have been pretty cool. Uh, you, you mentioned filming in Vancouver and Paris. You're a guy that's gotten to experience a lot of different facets of this industry. Can you tell us about what the differences are about like the L.A. scene, the Vancouver scene, which is actually pretty big in the, the entertainment industry, and then filming in Paris. What are all the, the differences and challenges working in these well, places? Well, L.A. is the biggest scene. I mean, there's, there's, the, the industry is so big, and it's very different now than when we did Highlander. And it, it sounds basic, but the Internet changed everything. It changed with the way agents are communicating with actors. Things are moving so much faster. Also, at the time, you didn't really have access to scripts or breakdowns for roles. You had to go literally pick up your material if you were auditioning. Now everything moves so fast, and there's a gazillion people here in L.A. Vancouver, when we were there, it was really at the inception of what's become like a mini L.A., and now I haven't been there since we did the show, but I know there's an immense amount of production going on there, and it's really just a slightly smaller version of Los Angeles. But at the time, as far as I knew, 21 Jump Street's out there, 
and Wise Guy, which Jim Burns was on right. uh, with Ken Wall. They were doing, um, <laughs> you guys know, the David Duchovny show. Oh, yeah, oh, X-Files. X-Files was shooting up there, too. Yeah. Yeah. X-Files, yes, yeah, right. yeah. They started doing that, and then more shows manifested as we were there, but at the time, it was kind of a new scene, and to the point where the city wasn't that congested, we could literally shoot in two locations in a, in a day, pack up the entire, you know, all the trucks, everything, you know, go from the city into the country, and now, as I understand it, you could never do that. It's, wow. There's so much production. The city is much bigger. It was advised to me at the time, hey, maybe you should think about buying an apartment here, and I thought, oh, I don't need an apartment. I'm, I'm, I'm staying in a hotel. Uh, looking back, that would have been a very good investment. <laughs> <laughs> and Paris was just insanely exciting. I mean, being right in the middle of the city, and I grew up in New York City, so I miss that kind of energy. I mean, L.A. is, you know, it's a very big city, but it's really one massive suburban area. You have to drive everywhere, and Paris is, you know, a walking city, or you're you're on the subway, the metro. But that was just so exciting. I will say... The novelty did wear off a little bit. At the beginning, you know, there was a lot of exploring and a lot of things to do, but Vancouver was a more practical place to do a show. If if this makes sense, like, it was not easy to get to a gym in Paris. You know, I would go to the concierge, the hotel, ask, you know, hey, can I get to a gym? And it's very different in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, gym, why would you want to go to a gym? And, what, you know, <laughs> what do you do, you know? Yeah, it's very different. And Jim Burns would joke, uh, you know, I can, I go downstairs and go around the corner and buy a Cartier watch, but you know, I don't know where I'm going to, I'm going to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great. It was exciting. But as time wore on, it did sort of lose a little bit of the, the novelty. Although the show was much bigger in Europe. So uh, as we got into season four, five, we were more well known there, which was, at the time, it was it was fun. It was exciting. You walk down the street, people are turning their heads, which was not the case in L.A. and a little bit more in Vancouver. But in Paris, the show was really big. And so, especially being young and being my first lead in a TV show, it was it was fun. Awesome. Yeah, and, and obviously, pre-cell phones and everything you're doing being recorded, uh, we probably got away with some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's really uh, funny you bring that up, because we talked to Adrian a number of months ago, and he was talking that uh, you and him would play a lot of like pranks on set he told us about like a crazy food fight you had what was kind of the camaraderie like on the set are there any crazy stories you want to share uh with our audience you know i didn't remember the food fight until you mentioned it but yes <laughs> we did I, now that now that you mentioned it we had a huge food fight i recall in paris i think the producers got a little annoyed because the food got all over the clothes and <laughs> you know there was some time where i put a sign on his back and he was walking around the set for uh, a considerable amount of time didn't know the sign was on his back. There's a story that's out there that one time I dressed up as a woman to see if he would buy it, and he claims he didn't, but I think he bought into it for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there, there was a considerable amount of practical joke. Yeah. Awesome. The arc of your character obviously changed a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about when you left the show? Uh, where Actually, we should give you a little background. Uh, so the premise of sure our course. show is we've been watching basically every single episode of the series in order, and we talk about it in detail, and we kind of give an analysis of it, what we think. You guys probably remember a lot more than I do. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, it's funny because, well, both uh, Eamon and I, we grew up watching this like when we were teenagers now, and this whole podcast came about because we were like, hey, we should revisit this like show we loved when 
when we were kids, which has been really great well, to do. But yeah, we're about like halfway through season three. But of course, as many of our listeners know, your character leaves the show uh, in season five. Can you tell us about like, were you happy with that arrangement? Was that something that was, you know, mutual? Did you like the way your character departed the show? It was a bit sudden. I mean, it wasn't really something that I knew was going to happen, you know, a a long time prior to it happening, but I wasn't at all disappointed. I was doing other things in L.A., and I think the producers knew that I know I had done a Friends episode, and I've done a couple of TV movies, I think, and I I can't recall exactly, but I think all good things must come to an end. So they presented it to me, and I thought, okay, you know, that's that. I mean, we've done five seasons, and, you know, I felt like the character and the time that I spent on the show had pretty much run its course anyway at that point. So it was very amicable. I didn't really know that it was going to happen until slightly before it did. I believe, and you know, I don't know how much I'm supposed to say at this point, but I think that they didn't know if it, the show was going to get picked up for a sixth season, mm-hmm. and they wanted to make a big dramatic end at the end of season five. And now, having been in the business for a long time, I know this is what shows do. You know, and sometimes it means killing off a character and that actor is, you know, they're the one getting killed, but it's really going to bring a lot of ratings to the show and it's going to, you know, be a big dramatic moment. And there's always ways to bring people back should, should one want to. But I had a good time with the episode. And yes, it was very mutual and it was fun and it was exciting and it was, you know, surreal at the time. But I was already in a sense, moving on and doing other things anyway. So it was it was totally fine. Awesome. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about what you're up to now? Uh, you obviously did a lot of guest roles after Highlander. Can you tell us a little bit about your move to directing? In the early 2000s, I was interested, and it sounds cliche, an actor wants to be a director. I had an opportunity to teach, and I, I started teaching and coaching actors on the side while I was still what I would call an actor for hire, meaning I had a manager, I had an agent, you know, they would call, you have auditions, uh, they would field offers if there were. But I was more interested in being a little bit more in control. And a friend of mine and I came up with this idea to do Straight Eye the movie. At the time, there was a show on Bravo called Weird Eye for the Straight Guy. And we just came up with the idea, what if we just spun it around? And once we got the idea, it happened pretty quickly. And I was able to assemble a, a fantastic cast, Alan Dale, David Hornsby, Kelly Mantle, who came out in a big movie this past year, and I'm sure I'm forgetting other names, but it was very exciting to put that together, and every single person worked on a volunteer basis. You know, we paid for the entire shoot and and everything, but, you know, Don Knessa, as I mentioned before, he came in, he produced it, he brought in some camera guys, and a lot of people worked for free, and it was really touching that people would spend that time, and it was a a long two-day shoot on a weekend, and he and I edited for about six to nine months, uh, <laughs> which was an arduous process for a 15-minute movie. Right. Um, and I learned a lot from him there. You know, at some point, he, he had this thing that he taught me, is it going to be different or is it going to be better? <laughs> and we tried a lot of incarnations of it. But my eye was moving away from, you know, being in, in the piece to wanting to really be outside the piece, control more things. And fortunately, it came out well. And we won an award at a film festival, at the Griffin International Film 
Film Festival, I think it was in Missouri, and we actually ended up cutting it into segments to do a sort of a uh, web miniseries, but we, to this day, haven't put it out there, and it's something we really should do. I don't know how relevant it is anymore. At the time, I was sort of at a crossroads. I was either going to delve further into directing and really make, you know, a valiant effort at that point to spend a lot of money on a great website and get all my stuff out there and do that. And then the studio just sort of happened organically. You know, people, I, I had been teaching for a while and coaching for a while, like I said, on the side. And then people just started calling and, you know, are you going to do this? Are you going to do this? And it was definitely a leap for my wife and I to say, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to go get commercial space. And uh, eventually she had to put her acting and hosting career on the side and we had no concept that it would get as large as it has and now we've got three studios and a lot of teachers and uh-huh. I mean it's been it's been ama- it's been amazing and it's been great uh it's been a tremendous amount of work so I just sort of had to put all that on hold and that's something I definitely would love to revisit as time goes on more directing Cool, cool. And then we would shoot reels for actors. I did a commercial for Qualcomm. And then this short film, Us One Night, that you had mentioned. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that was really the first time someone came to me, other well, the commercial, and said, you know, I, I you know, I'm going to fund this thing, and I want to. When, when you start directing, essentially, you have to self fund everything. Nobody's just going to give you money to go do something. And then you get to a point where, okay, well, you're not directing, you know, an, a TV series for NBC, but people are coming saying, hey, I want you to do this, and all assemble all the parts and do it to your liking. And so that was a fun and exciting thing too. Although the guy that produced it, well, I guess we both brought people to the table, but he brought a good cast together. There was Alison Brie, who now has blown up. She was on Mad Men. Yeah. And she was also on Community, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, Liza Wheel, who's on The Gilmore Girls, now is on How to Get Away with Murder. So we had a really good cast. And that was a tough shoot because we had to do it all in one night. And it took place at one party. And essentially, we shot the end of the movie first. As the sun was setting, we made it look like the sun was coming up. (laughs) And then we shot the entire film indoors. And then as the sun was rising, we shot the beginning of the movie as if the sun was coming up. But we were under the gun that we had to get it done because we had to get out there to get the first scene of the movie at, at like 5.30 in the morning. I am a diehard Highlander fan. I love Highlander so much, and I am a huge fan of this podcast, de facto, because I'm a member of it. How can I show my support and get some really cool shit in the process? Oh, there is one really great way you can support this podcast and support your love of Highlander by heading on over to our Facebook page and picking up a set of our awesome new Highlander magnets, uh, which are available for the price of $25 plus shipping and handling. What do you get for that amazing price? It's an awesome collection of five magnets featuring all your favorite characters. We've got Duncan McLeod, Amanda, Joe, Mythos, and a really cool alternate 1600 Scottish Highlands McLeod. Awesome. Eamon, who made these things? Like, what awesome artist somewhere made these things? It was me. Yay! I made them with the help of you guys and Davis Panzer Productions. Definitely. These are fully authorized Highlander merchandise from the Highlander Rewatch podcast. Yeah! Uh, And if you're an international listener, we can ship these internationally now. Uh, So don't buy them from our Facebook page, but head over to Etsy.com and just search for Highlander Rewatch. And if you place your order through Etsy, 
We can ship anywhere in the world. Well, I pretty much wherever Etsy can ship, wherever FedEx or whoever's going to ship it can ship. We can't we can... ship to the planet Zeist. Nope, though. no shipping to Zeist. No. So you run an acting school now. Can you tell us exactly what is your acting school about? Like, what is acting coaching? That's a little different than if you went to college to study acting, right? Yeah, okay. So this wasn't really something that, to my knowledge, was around in the 90s when I was really doing the bulk of my acting. And it's now something that's much more prevalent. I mean, I know there are people that do this. What we do is basically the studio consists of classes and private coaching. Private coaching is something that, for the most part, actors utilize when they have an audition. And they'll come in, they'll send their sides, which is the material that they have to do for the audition. And uh, myself or any one of our coaches will read them ahead of time. They come in, and whether it's a 15-minute, you know, coaching or coaching can go up to a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, depending upon the length of the material. And we'll go through and basically, you know, answer questions. I would say, if I had to put it in a nutshell, direct them through the audition. You know, I would make this choice here, try this here, try that there, so that they leave the coaching feeling as confident and as strong as possible going into the room with the choices that they've made. I would say that's probably 75% of it, and then maybe 25% is people who've already booked things, and they want to go through the material that they've booked. And, I mean, I've worked with people who are leads on series, and they're coming in every week, or we're Skyping every week if they're out of town, going through the scenes, going through, you know, the choices that they'll make, talking about a character arc. That's the private coaching. We also do something which is much more prevalent in the business now than ever, and I think it's only going to augment, which is actors having to put themselves on tape for auditions. So we have two taping studios. They're lit. They're mic'd. The quality is, is great. And they'll come in. They have to put themselves on tape for the audition. So we do that as well. And then we also run classes. There's essentially three different types of acting classes out there. There's what's called scene study, where actors are paired up with other people and other actors, and they're, they're doing scenes for anywhere from a couple of weeks to, you know, multiple weeks or even months at a time. And then there's what's called cold reading classes where actors are given the material right there. They have a few minutes. They come in. The teacher will give them notes. Our classes are designed to replicate what happens to actors who are out there in the business, who are auditioning, who are doing this on a regular basis. So we're working with current film TV material. We focus on the audition process. We don't assign scenes, and we're pulling all our material from current film and TV roles that are casting at that given time. Like, for example, tonight I'm going to read two or three scripts for pilots that are currently casting. That's what the actors are going to be doing those roles in class tomorrow night, and it's my job or any of the other coaches' job to address what would be stronger choices, how to, you know, how to navigate their way through the material as solidly as possible. And there's people in class who have been series regulars. They're not classes designed for a beginning actor. Their class is designed for people who already had training, who are now at a point where they're ready to go out and audition or have been auditioning in some cases for decades. Uh, and then in that, and in that case, it's more like their gym. They come in on a week to week basis because they want to keep those skills as sharp as possible. The business has become incredibly competitive and agents promote coaching and training for their actors more so than ever because there's that edge that you need going in the room and just a choice here, a choice 
was there to make the biggest difference in booking a part and can change one's career. Awesome. Does that help? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Is, is there a particular uh, like Stan Kirsch style of acting? Is there uh, a philosophy you prescribe to? Is there a piece of advice that you always like to give your students? Well, you know, years ago, I would, you know, m- you know meet a waiter, waitress in restaurants, and we'd say, oh, what's your method? Is it Stanislavski? Is it Meisner? All these sort of old-school techniques. Mm-hmm. And I would say our method is, you know, go book a job. <laughs> right. How to book a job. When actors come to the studio, they first take a class that we call the boot camp, where they're working on specific scenes that we've already selected as teachers. All the teachers are working in the boot camp, and they're doing drama, they're doing multi-camp comedy, they're doing single-camp comedy, and they're sort of getting our terminology, our vernacular, the way we suggest approaching this material, and addressing all the questions they have about, you know, how to make the strongest choices, auditioning in front of a camera, auditioning, you know, live in front of producers. And then from there, they'll go into ongoing class. But there's really not a philosophy other than other than booking. We're very practical in our approach to the work. And I don't disparage anybody, but I don't talk to anybody in class about, tell me who this person reminds you of, or what was your relationship like with your father? That's not what we do. <laughs> right. our, we're more, as coaches, directing people through the scene. So what, when I say that, I don't mean it facetiously at all. Like, our method that our philosophy is how to book a job. And uh, if you don't mind my going for another minute on this. No, of course When not. I started in the business, even when we started Highlander in 1992, there were three major networks that were making com- half-hour comedies, one-hour dramas. They sort of all had a very similar pace and tone. And now we're in an era where there's hundreds of channels that are out there. There's networks branding themselves on certain slogans like TNT, they know drama. USA sells characters are welcome. And now with the advent of all these other platforms, the Hulus, the Amazons, Netflix, it's imperative that actors are watching everything. They're knowing and understanding the tones of different shows or features if they're going in, what that director's done before, and making the appropriate kinds of choices for that particular piece. Uh, I mean, essentially, and this is a broad example, but what will make someone brilliant, you know, in a Clint Eastwood film audition will make them, you know, look ridiculous in a sitcom for Nickelodeon. And then the reverse <laughs> is true. And today, more than ever, and I don't think it's going to change, it's only going to increase, it is very incumbent upon actors to know these tones, be familiar with these tones, and make those kinds of choices. And I do meet actors that are good actors, but they don't know the difference. They don't know, okay, what do I do because this is an MTV comedy? Will I be making choices that are different than a CBS show? Uh, and you would make different kinds of choices. Know when maybe a little ad-libbing is appropriate, when that's not appropriate. And it wasn't imperative that actors really knew that when I started. And this kind of training didn't even exist. So that's more and more why agents are sending their clients to, you know, places such as us. People are coming out of schools, in some cases, Juilliard, Carnegie Mellon, CalArts, and huge theater programs with an immense amount of training, but they've yet to get into a room and audition for Big Bang Theory or The Last Ship or a show like Casual. And they want, they, they want and need their actors to understand, know those, the tones of these shows and films and how to go in and successfully book those jobs. 
and I hear it every day. I represent good actors, but I need them to make the strongest, appropriate choices going in the room. And that's where we come in. Like, I was trained as an illustrator. It's like target marketing, almost. Like, you have to know what yeah, your strength very is. Much like that. And kind of go for that niche. Yeah, you know, knowing what you sell, your essence, your strengths, and then knowing what you're auditioning for. I mean, we, we give out a lot of quotes uh, and literature to art, uh, to actors when they first come to the studio, and one that comes to mind is from a woman named Dorian Frankel, who's a big casting director. She was doing Parks and Rec, and she said, I could tell within 10 seconds in an audition if an actor understood the tone of a show. And if they didn't understand the tone of a show, it didn't matter how good they were, I couldn't even give them a callback. Because we don't have time to explain this is what the tone of the show is. They already need to know that. They need to be familiar with that. And the tone of my show, she said, you know, is going to be different than other shows. And I suspect it's the same no matter what you're auditioning for. And it is. You know, on top of that, it's our job as teachers and coaches where we work to know what those tones are and be familiar with those and not approach every piece of material with the same set of tools. Awesome. That's brilliant advice. Well, we've heard word that you're going to be attending the Highlander 25th anniversary convention in L.A. Is that true? Yeah, I'm very excited about it. Awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, Also, speaking uh, for ourselves, we were kind of too young to attend a Highlander convention when we were younger. So I know we're very happy and excited to to be going to this a little older now. I'm Um, excited to meet you guys in person. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's so, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's it's also kind of crazy to think that Highlander was twenty five years ago now. What yeah, what is tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looking back on it? What is what does Highlander mean to you? Uh, I mean, like it's it's kind of remarkable that the the fandom has you know persisted, which is really cool. Oh my god, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I would have never thought in nineteen ninety two that twenty five years later I'd be going to a convention. <laughs> uh, we we also always ask our uh, guests, you know, would you want to be immortal if you had the choice? Would I want to be immortal? That's an inter- interesting question. You know, I I don't think so. I think you know, and being a part of the show and seeing that, and even the movies, which I've now seen, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so much pain and suffering and so much loss that I think that would be very trying and very difficult. I mean, the bonuses, um, you get to experience a lot, but I don't know that that's something that I would necessarily choose. The show itself, it was definitely a pivotal and defining moment in my life, in my career. I was very young in my acting career when I started, and I met people like Adrian and like Don Panessa that I still talk to and I'm still close to. I had been working before, but that's where I really learned about really how to navigate your way through a set and really having to take a role and not just essentially shoot the scenes that you auditioned with, but get new material every week. Uh, I learned about adrenaline and how to keep that going, not to waste too much energy too soon. And uh, I really learned about the filmmaking process before then. And I was only in L.A. for a year and a half when I got the part, but everything was so quick. You know, I'd get a part, go to the set, shoot it, be done. And I came out of it a much more seasoned actor. I came out of it far more seasoned about the business, how things work, the politics of it. It was interesting for me personally because when I started auditioning and even the Richie character, I was auditioning for 17-year-olds. I came out of the show and was all of a sudden playing attorneys and I thought, I can't really look that much different, but I was told by casting directors and you know people that I was working with then at the time that there's something different in your eyes. And I look back now and I realized I had experienced so much, and especially, you know, going to these 
other countries and, you know, shooting in these, you know, various places. I grew up a lot, you know, as a person and as an actor. A lot of that experience I take and use to this day. It's interesting that you mentioned adrenaline. I'm wondering, when you first started on the show, it seems like a lot of pressure, like you have to deliver on this show yes. week after week. Like, did you yes. use adrenaline at first to kind of get you through having to deliver and then that change over time? Or I- I'm wondering what, like, that evolution is. Well, I remember sitting down with Peter DeLuise, who was a guest star in the very beginning of the series. Uh, it was one of the first few episodes. Yeah, I think that's a family and, tree. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, yeah, No, I think you're right. You guys know. <laughs> <laughs> and he had just come off 21 Jump Street. Although he was a guest star, and I was at the time a series regular, I looked up to him. And we became friends, friendly, I should say, and friends at the time. We went for lunch or coffee, and I will never forget this. He said, can I give you a piece of advice? He said, absolutely. You just came off, you know, five, six years on Jump Street. And he said, when you're not shooting, sit in the chair, go back to your dressing room. You know, it's, it's, it's exciting now. It's new. It's something, you know, that's like, wow. And so, you know, you want to be sort of part of the action all the time, but you're going to need that energy as the day goes on. And you're going to need that energy seven months from now. And, and it was probably, we started in July of 92, I do remember. And so that was probably sometime in August. And he knew enough to know that we'd be shooting come March. And it was a great, great piece of advice. And you know, like all advice, I think when you get it, you know, you sort of like, okay, that sounds great, you know, and you apply it a little bit. <laughs> and then as when you really need it, you're like, oh, I remember Peter saying that. And it was definitely something that I learned with time how to not only hold on to that energy, like I said, for the day. You start at the beginning when you're shooting, you know, at that time, there was a lot of master shots and then close-ups. And, you know, I wanted to give everything right at the very beginning and not realizing, hey, the close-up might not happen for two or three hours. So I learned about that and something I teach to actors today, you know, look at the whole picture, ask what the shot list is. You know, if your close-up is coming, like, fourth or fifth, you know, relax a little bit. You know, you, you don't want to be spent by the time that happens. And then also, like I said, in the long run, when you're working on a series like that, you've got to think three, four, five, six months ahead. And when you have time, take a break, rest, because you're going to need that energy at some point later, and especially with all the traveling involved. Is there any crazy story you've never shared with anybody about Highlander at a convention or whatever that you want to, like, share with our audience? <laughs> a crazy story? Well, um, I love doing the convention. I always had such a good time. The fans were amazing. The conventions were fantastic. I don't know if these are really crazy stories, but I think it was the last two that I did where they were special to me because I was able to bring my wife. We purchased her wedding ring in Indianapolis at the convention there. And so that was an exciting thing for us personally. And I do remember one in Denver, and this was probably in the 90s. My sister went, and uh, she's not a public speaker and not one for, you know, being up in front of a crowd. And I sort of pulled her up on stage and she said said a few things <laughs> and I'll never forget that. Is it weird that conventions have kind of like become a thing almost that actors have to go to? It's weird that it's like kind of become like part of a thing of like promoting a show or something. I don't know if that's interesting or not, but it's just the <laughs> thought. I mean, now I have a lot of my clients who will come to me and say, oh, you know, they're 
on a, a you know big uh, animated series or they're doing a show for Disney or something and they they mention like oh they want me to do a convention and I said, oh my gosh absolutely you know do it meet the fans the fans are the people that are keeping you employed it's definitely something that's I think a part of one's job and I you know I look at it as a particularly exciting thing for people. Because to be frank, it's not like you can just sort of, okay, I'm going to fly to, you know, to Indianapolis, say, and I'm going to meet Brad Pitt. It doesn't really work that way. <laughs> you know, but when you're on, you know, these shows like Highlander that, you know, develops a cult following, people have the opportunity to go meet the stars of this show in person. And I know how special it is for people to have that opportunity and, you know, get that picture. And it seems like, oh, it's just like, you know, another thing that you're doing. But people have really gone out of their way, and they've spent, you know, in some cases, a considerable amount of their income to attend these things. I feel, as an actor, it's incumbent upon one to go and, and really give the most of themselves because it means so much to the people who are there. And it is a part of the job. Cool. Well, Stan, thank you so much for joining us. It was absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, we got to learn about the acting side of things, the directing side, the editing side, the coaching side. Like, we we got, like, a crash course, I think. Uh, we got our own, like, mini <laughs> mini coaching session on uh, the industry tonight, which was really awesome. This was a true treat for us, and I hope the fans have enjoyed reconnecting with you. And also, I hope a lot of the fans are making sure they log on to HighlanderWorldwide.com to get tickets to uh, meet Stan and the other stars of Highlander at the Los Angeles 25th Anniversary Convention. And also, oh, thank you, guys. I had, I had a great time. Awesome, awesome. It was my pleasure. Very cool. Uh, well, thank you so much, Stan, for joining us, and we will see You're you welcome. in October. Thanks yes. again. Thank you, Stan. I look forward to it. All right, see ya. Bye. All right, happy see ya. birthday. <laughs> happy future birthday. <laughs> oh, thank you.